0: Thank you, David. God bless you. The kids are going out to the Sunday school. That's good. Hope you're all doing well this morning. And we're looking forward to a message. It wasn't me. Um, my name, I know my name's on there. But uh, we've got someone else to give us a great message this morning. Brother Alan, would you come forward? I think we're okay to go over here. God bless you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Are we turned off? No, we're still on. we better turn that off, I think. I'm... I'm uh, Better than I was last time I uh, Thank you for the water, we may need that There may be the odd cough coming through But uh, definitely a, a lot better than I was last time I spoke And uh, thank you to the Lord for that Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8 Luke chapter 8 As we pre- continue through Luke, uh, the book of Luke <coughs> We'll be looking at a... a uh, a, uh, Luke chapter 8, that would help. And as a situation that's occurred here as Jesus returns from the other side of the, the lake where he was last time we were looking at it. Uh, Luke is, as I said, uh, I'm enjoying looking through the book of Luke. Um, and I must say that I have been blessed by a new toy. We uh, we put on our computer what's called e-sword, and thank you very much for the people who put me onto it. It is a great little little thing. You got there the King James, and you can look up the. Uh, uh, Strong's reference, and you can find a verse, and you can find a word, and look. I would seriously recommend to you. You want a little little toy to help you with your Bible study? Esword will will be a great help. Um, so yeah, that was good fun. I was uh, I was looking at it, and I, I was saying to Julie, "Come and look at this. Come and look what you can do with this. You press this little thingy here, and look what it does." So it was uh, it was good fun. Um, so I love those little gadgets and stuff you can you can put on. We're looking now. Jesus has returned, in, in Luke chapter eight, from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says that, in verse 30, when it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for them for, for him. And behold, there came a man named Jarius. He was a ruler of the synagogue and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come to his house. For for he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. We will not, in fact, be looking at the story of Jairus' daughter today because we've already dealt with that one earlier on. We're looking at what happened next as the people thronged him. Pressed around, crowded. All these people you know it's you, you well, we have a thing sometimes about personal space. These people didn't care about your personal space. They were crowded and thronging around him, and something happened, and that's what we're going to look at. Before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, open we pray your word to us this day. Open our hearts and our minds, our ears and our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things in your word. For we ask in our blessed Savior's name. Amen. In verse 43. And a woman, having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living on physicians, and neither could be healed of any, came behind and touched the border of his garment. (coughs) A woman who had had an issue of blood for 12 years crept up behind him, elbowed her way through the throng and reached out and touched him. There are a lot of things we can learn here but the first thing I want us to look at is that this disease this woman suffered is a picture of sin. It's a picture of sin. Notice I did not say she was suffering because she was sinning. No, no. This is a picture of what sin is like. Firstly, sin comes from inside. In the same manner that this disease did not enter to this woman from outside, no, it came from within her. Sin comes from inside. <coughs> Sin comes from the heart. Do you know what the first mention of the word heart is in the Bible? The very first time the word heart is mentioned in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 6, and verse 5 in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 we see and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil only evil that's what hearts are like incidentally you know how many times the word heart is mentioned in the Old Testament Six. 166 the number of man I don't know quite what that means but it's interesting isn't it but men's hearts are evil does not the prophet Jeremiah say in chapter 17 verse 9 that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it hearts are evil we think oh they have a good heart no they don't People don't have good hearts. People have sinful hearts. And it's only those who can look with honesty upon their own hearts they realise how sinful they are. Martin Luther said that he feared his own sinful heart more than the Pope and all his cardinals. Yeah. That's a person who's come to appreciate what their own heart is like. In in Mark chapter 9, if you look back there, Jesus talks about the heart. Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 and verse 18. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever the thing come from without entereth into a man it cannot defile him because it entereth not into his heart but into the belly and goes out in the draught purged with all meat and he said that which comes out of the man that defileth the man for from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness Wicked, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness—all these things, these evil things, come from within, and they defile the man. The problem with sin is it comes out of our hearts. You know the, the uh, we speak of the source of sin being the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, let me tell you, the world and the devil get a lot of credit for stuff that comes out of our own hearts the world and the devil do not need to work near as hard as we think they do because it's from within from our own sinful selves that we have most of our problems this woman's disease came from within and sin comes Because we have a sinful heart. Remember always, we do not have a sinful heart because we sin. No, we sin because we have a sinful heart. It's the problem in the heart first, then the hands and the head. What else do we find out about this disease? This woman having an issue of blood, 12 years, which had spent all her living. Tell you something else about sin? Sin costs. Sin costs. This woman had spent all her living. She was poor, but the indication is she had probably had some reasonable wealth at one time and spent it all trying to get this problem fixed. <coughs> sin Costs and it costs everything. Sin will take away everything you have. Some of you may have heard of a person called Nikki Cruz. Nikki Cruz lived in New York City. Nikki Cruz was a gang leader in New York City many years ago, but he tells a story of three drug addicts in New York who scored. Now in the summer, especially in New York, they'd go up on the roofs to shoot up because that's where it was cool. And these three drug addicts went up there, but their dealer had sold them some bad stuff. And the first person who shot up with the heroin died. The other two ran away. A few hours later, realising that the body hadn't yet been discovered, they returned Took off the junkie's shirt and shoes. They left the rest because he'd fouled them as he died and went and sold it to buy more dope. Sin will send you out into eternity without the shoes on your feet, without a coat on your back, without a shirt to your name. Sin will cost you everything everything till there is nothing left friends money family sin will steal it all from you <coughs> till you have nothing at all sin wants you to die alone and poor and broken hearted sin costs we know what sin cost our Saviour, but brethren, sin costs the sinner. Costs them everything they have. This woman spent all she had on, the, on this disease and it did no good. Neither could she be healed of any. Sin is incurable. Sin can't be fixed. The world would like to call it personality disorders. The world would like to call it uh, malfunctioning situational conditions. The world would like to call it an inability to cope with society. The Bible calls it sin. Apart from anything else, it's a lot easier to spell. It's not a difficulty with coping. It's not a problem with relationships. It's sin. Sin cannot be fixed. It's interesting that in Mark, when he tells this retells re- re- this story, Mark mentions that not only couldn't the doctors help, they actually made things worse. Somehow, Dr. Luke had neglected to put that little piece in, maybe perhaps feeling of professional courtesy there that he shouldn't mention that the other doctors not only couldn't help but they made things worse but that's like people trying to fix sin they're putting band-aids on skin cancers makes it look better but doesn't help no person, priest, prince, pope or potentate can fix your sin you're stuck with it. Neither could she be helped of any. Now that indicates she tried. She tried her best. And the people who came to help her tried her be- their best. But they couldn't help. There's a, there are existing in the world and they do a lot of good what are generally known as 12-step programs based on the functioning and quite well-working AA system. But you know, if you talk to the people who are in these programs, they say the best they can get, the very, very best achievement that AA can do for a drunk, you know what it is? To make them a sober drunk. They have to realise they will be a drunk for the rest of their lives. Because it can't fix them. No system can fix them. No system or help in the world can cure sin because it is incurable. Why? Because of the first point, it comes out of the heart. Neither could she be healed of anything. Fourthly, we need to realise that sin makes you unclean. Now, this was this woman, one of this woman's real problems was that she could not go into the temple because in this condition, she was regarded as unclean and could not enter into worship. <coughs> now, you might say to yourself, well, who would know? She could go into the temple and no one would know. I'll tell you there's two people who'd know. She'd know and God would know. That's why she didn't do it. You can come into a church, you can come into a religion, you can come into any group of people carrying your sin with you and there may be only two people who will ever know. You'll know and God will know that you are still unclean before him. She was cut off from worship, cut off from fellowship. Sin will alienate you from God's people. It will. You might think, oh yeah, I can just keep this little piece of sin over here and nobody will ever know about it. You can't. It will inevitably begin to grind you down, wear you down, and spill over into every part of your life because sin makes you unclean before a holy and a righteous God. Fifthly, sin makes you weak. Now, this woman, physically suffering as she was, would have had anemia, she would have been anemic. She would have been very pale. She would have been weak. She would have had her strength constantly drained out of her. Sin has the same effect on a person's moral life. Sin will make you weak. Sin will make it impossible for you to do the things you know you should morally. And again, we sometimes get this silly idea that we can keep a little bit of sin over here in a jar and just bring it out occasionally when we want to and the rest of the time, and it won't affect our lives. Well, it will. It will affect your life. You will not be able to keep it in one place. And it will weaken you. It'll weaken your morals. It'll weaken your standards. It'll weaken every single part of your mental and spiritual life. Because sin makes you weak. Just as this woman's physical problem made her physically weak, sin will make you weak. Sixthly, sin's fatal. One day... This woman's disease was going to kill her. She knew that. She knew that you cannot continue on this, with this situation indefinitely. Her resistance was dropping. Her ability to fight infection was disappearing. One day, this disease was going to kill her unless she got fixed. One day, your sin will kill you. In the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20, it says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. In the New Testament, the book of Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. One day sin will kill you. You might think, oh no, no, I can get away with this. It won't get me. Look over in the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation, chapter 20, verse 15. Verse 15 of Revelation, chapter 20. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The preceding verse says, This is the second death sin will kill you one way or another either in this world or the next sin is fatal you might live a long and happy and prosperous life and die at 120 in a huge comfortable bed and think that yeah you got away with it well the scripture says no there's the second death and your sin will kill you sin is fatal it's incurable. It's it's from inside you. You cannot get it out. No one else can help you. It makes you unclean. It makes you weak. And one day, your sin's going to kill you. So what did she do? She came behind him in verse 44, back in Luke chapter 8, and touched the border of his garment and immediately... Her issue of blood was staunched. says in another passage that she knew immediately within herself that she was cured. Immediately. She knew it. She could feel it in herself that cured. Now this raises an interesting question. And you know, I, I get these questions that come up in my head when I read scripture. It says, came behind him and touched the border of his garment. Well, which border of what garment? It's interesting, isn't it? That we speak of the hem of his robe. You ever heard that expression? Touch the hem of his robe? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says very well, clearly the border of his garment. Never mentions his robe. You look at all three recordings of this in, in, the, uh, in the three Gospels, it says the hem of his garment. Well, which garment? Comes. From, I ask the question, what garments was Jesus wearing? Well, we have a pretty good idea how he would have dressed actually. He would have had on an inner garment that was called a, a, a kiton. Incidentally, that's where we eventually got the word cotton. Because that's what it was made out of. An inner cotton garment There would have been an outer tunic He would have worn some form of head covering. It was pretty hot there, you know, some head covering. And sandals. Plus one other thing. One other thing. Have a look in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. Thirty-eight, And this is where things start to get really, to my mind, really interesting. Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations. And that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. Blue, the colour of heaven. Oh. Was this to mean on all their garments? On all their garments there was to be a blue fringe? And the purpose was to, in verse 39, and it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look on it and remember the commandments of the Lord and do them. Well, have a, have a look over in Deuteronomy chapter 22 gets another mention Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 12 thou shalt make the fringes upon the four quarters of thy vesture wherewith thou coverest thyself hang on that's a square garment fringes upon the corners got to have got to be square if it's got corners of the garment that you use to cover yourself okay you've seen pictures of the jewish men at the wailing wall seen pictures of that what have they got around their shoulders a prayer shawl even if you go to an orthodox synagogue now Many of the men and always, always the rabbi will have a prayer shawl. It is square, it is white, and it has a blue border with tassels around it. And when the rabbi stands up to pray, he will pick up his prayer shawl and he will cover his head with it as a sign of his humility before God and pray. The garment that you used to cover yourself. It wasn't talking about clothing. It was talking about the garment you used to cover yourself when you prayed. Your prayer shawl. Now as a teacher. As a, a, a teacher in Israel. As a rabbi in fact. Because that's what the word rabbi means. It means teacher. Jesus would have taken his his prayer shawl with him because a rabbi, a teacher was expected to be always ready to pray. Now the average man would have taken it with him to synagogue but would not have worn it all the time. But a teacher carried it constantly. So this is the one extra piece of clothing that Jesus would have had around his shoulders would have been a prayer shawl. Would have been about that big, that big, would have been folded diagonally and worn around the shoulders. And it had, as we see in in Luke chapter 8, it had a border on it. And the border was in blue and it had a fringe and tassels on it. And it is almost certain this is what she reached forward to touch. His pressure. Why? Why that? Why had she said to herself, you know, if I do that, I'll be cured. Why did she think that? Was she the only person who thought that? Now, have a look In Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We've actually read this before, but I don't know if anybody quite picked it up. I didn't until I I was looking at it later. Matthew chapter 14, verse 36. Let's start at verse 35. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out to all the country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased diseased, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garments and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. She wasn't the only person who believed this. People believed that if they touched the hem of his prayer shawl they would be healed. Where on earth did they get this idea from? Well, have a look. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter chapter 4. Verse 2. Malachi chapter 4, 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. Healing in his... See that word wings? That word wings? Healing in his wings? It's the same word that in Numbers chapter 15 is translated borders. Yeah. Healing in his wings. Healing in his tassels. Healing in the borders. Same word. And the people believed that when the Messiah arrived, when the Messiah, the Son of God came, when this Son of Righteousness came, he would have healing in his prayer. Shawl. She believed it. You might think, well, that's a, that's a superstition. That's just, that's just, you know, not, not good theology. Don't you get the point? It meant she believed that this was the Messiah. That this was the Son of God. That this was the one whom God had promised. That's what she believed. Incidentally, Jesus didn't, wasn't particularly fond of these, these prayer shawl tassels. Because in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5, he rebukes the Pharisees for making them extra big so that they'll look extra spiritual. Because it's not externals that are important here. Did you know that we mention that, this? This belief in hymns? Yeah? Have a look at the last verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, Hail the Son of Righteousness, risen with healing in his wings. That's a quote from Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. Yeah. So here's this woman she's elbowed her way through the crowd and she reaches out and touches the tassels on Jesus' prayer shawl believing if I can just reach out and touch him I will be healed because this is the Son of God, the Messiah and immediately she was healed Jesus says, Who touched me? Now you've got to understand this. They're crowded in like like the 745 from Sandringham, you know? They're, They're packed in tight. And Jesus says, Who touched me? Peter says, Master, they're all thronging around you, and you're saying, Who touched me? There's probably 10 or 15 people who are touching you right now. What's what do you mean? And he says, Someone has touched me with purpose, with a reason, because I perceive that power, that virtue has gone out of me. Where are you? Now, he didn't do it because he didn't know who it was. He knew exactly who it was. He said that because he wanted her to show herself. So she did the woman saw that she could not be hid verse 27 and she came trembling and fell down before him and declared unto him all uh, unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately I, I think she sort of did it in a rush I got the image of this woman falling down and saying and Lord I've been sick for 12 years and I thought no one could help and the doctors couldn't help and I've just, I just thought if I could yeah. all in a, in, a, in a rush explaining what she'd done And he calmly says to her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Realise, it wasn't the touching. It was the faith that drove the touching that made her whole. That was what he wanted her to understand. That it wasn't the prayer shawl. It was the faith that drove her to it had healed her. A few things about this woman, the way she came. Number one, she came personally. She didn't send anyone. She didn't have a deputation. She didn't hold a prayer meeting. She didn't have a a healing service. She came personally to Christ. Many years ago, I was in a hall in Warragul on the day that I became a Christian. The day that I quit fighting God and accepted Him for who He was and me for who I was. It was very personal. I felt. That I had the personal attention of the ruler of the universe. And that at that time there was nothing he would rather do than talk to me there. It's personal. Coming to Christ is always personal. It's individual. She came personally Secondly, she came purposefully. She came with the aim of doing one thing, getting healed. When you come to Christ, come with the one aim of getting saved. Nothing else. All the other things will work out later. But you need to come to Christ with one purpose only. You see, all the other people... They were thronging Christ and touching him by accident. They were there because they wanted to hear what he had to say. Maybe they'd come to him because they thought he was a great teacher. Maybe they'd come to him because they wanted to see what miracles he'd do next. Maybe they were coming to him just to hear his, his, his sermons. She came with the sole aim of getting her problem fixed. She came with a purpose. When you come to Christ, don't come to him as a good teacher... Don't come to him as a moral leader. Come to him as the saviour of the world with the one aim of getting your sin problem fixed. Come with a purpose. Come personally. Come with a purpose. Second, Thirdly, she came expectantly. She believed that this was going to happen. Didn't matter how many people she had to kick out of the way to reach that saviour, she expected a cure Instantly, and got one the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him come to him expecting him to reward you for seeking him she believed that this one here was the Messiah, was the Son of God, and He was present with power to heal, and something was going to happen. Come to God expecting something to happen. I remember one, one person uh, said that they, they felt like praying, Oh God, if there is a God, save my soul if I have a soul. That sort of prayer is not going to do any good. If you're going to come to God you have to believe that he is and believe that he can save you come expectantly you know people will sneer at this woman and say oh what a primitive childish faith would to God that more people had a primitive childish faith like this that would kick people out of the way and say I'm going to get to the saviour no matter what she's a she is not a second rate example she is a first rate example she is a first rate example of a person who knew what their problem was and knew who could fix it oh you got a sin problem something in your heart you know it's there you know that it needs fixing you know that no one else can help. You know that you desperately need. And you know one day, if you don't do something, it's going to get you. You know that. Well, I'm telling you, there is one here today who can save, who can reach out and help where no one else can. If you come to him today, personally, if you come to him today purposefully believing He can help if you come to Him expecting He can save He will guaranteed nothing sure I have it on the authority of the sovereign God of the universe that if you come to Christ today He will receive you guaranteed that's a better guarantee than you get anywhere else in this world got a problem Jesus can deal with it. He can fix it. You need to talk about it. come and talk to me after the service. Talk to Frank after, to pastor Frank after the service. If you don't feel like you can talk that talk to Miriam. Talk to one of the people. You know there are people here who would love to talk to you about your soul. Talk to them and have God do the healing in your soul that you know he's capable of doing thank you